Welcome back to the Adam Schefter podcast in the NFL offseason that doesn't stop. And on today's podcast, we will be joined by the new head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the former New York Jets head coach, the man that takes over for Bruce Arians, who stepped aside last week at the NFL owners meetings. Today, we'll be joined by Tampa Bay's head coach, Todd Bowles. And when we talk about last week and all that occurred at the NFL owners meetings in West Palm Beach, Florida, there was certainly plenty to digest. Now, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers situation unfolded the day after the meetings ended with Todd Bowles being promoted to the head coaching spot. But there was plenty of news from the NFL owners meetings themselves. And we start with the fact that no matter what anybody says, there are many ownership groups that were not pleased with the contract that the Cleveland Browns handed out to Deshaun Watson, the fully guaranteed $230 million deal. The phrase that one NFL executive used to me was that there was a quote unquote quasi mutiny amongst NFL owners about the deal that the Browns handed out to Watson that is expected to have reverberations around the league for years to come. Now, we believe that other quarterbacks will want their contracts fully guaranteed. Now, we believe that other elite star players will want their contracts fully guaranteed. And you could imagine the prices that owners of great quarterbacks are going to have to pay. What is Steve Bashotti going to have to pay Lamar Jackson whenever that deal gets done? What are the Chargers going to have to pay Justin Herbert when that deal gets done? What are the Bengals going to have to pay Joe Burrow when that deal gets done? And the owners were not happy. And the Browns say that they didn't get any cold shoulders, and that's fine. But that was the phrase that was used to me by another NFL executive, quasi-mutiny amongst NFL owners. Not that they could do anything, but they were not pleased with the contract that was handed out. Then there was the issue of NFL teams being ordered to hire a diverse offensive staff, a diverse offensive coach, to have a minority on staff on the offensive side of the football. And while there was a meeting amongst NFL owners and head coaches, I am told that the Seahawks head coach, Pete Carroll, stood up and acknowledged to the room and said, I know this is going to be unpopular and we can put anything we want in place, but it's not going to change until all the owners accept that there are candidates out there, job candidates out there that are not like owners, that don't make owners comfortable. And Pete Carroll went on a long rampage for about 10 minutes saying to the owners, essentially, that they're living in their own universe, not always hiring the best people for their coaching staffs. And essentially, Pete Carroll called out the owners in that meeting. That occurred on Tuesday morning at the 9.30 general managers, general managers, head coaches meeting. Uh, the meeting went longer and pushed back the overtime conversation that went longer. And again, one person said, and I quote, he just went off. He was saying you can do anything, but until owners get to know these candidates before the actual interviews and understand that they have to hire people 
who are different than them, it's not going to really change. And nobody challenged him on it, but I'm told that people were not happy that Pete Carroll sounded off about the owners. Might have struck a nerve with them. Some people in the room didn't really like the idea of this new position on the coaching staff being created. But essentially, pointed remarks from the Seahawks head coach, Pete Carroll, directed at the other NFL owners. We mentioned overtime, the new overtime rule, where both teams now will get to possess the football. And here's something to think about. Now, where it used to be that the team that won the coin toss had the advantage, it may just be that the team that gets the ball second has the advantage because there are coaches, there are executives who believe that the team that gets the ball second, if they're behind by a touchdown, they will have the ability to go for two-point conversions after if they're able to score a touchdown. So just think about this past postseason. Let's think about the Chiefs scoring a touchdown, the Bills getting the ball back, the Bills going down and scoring a touchdown, which perhaps they would have done in that particular spot. Can you imagine the Buffalo Bills head coach, Sean McDermott, having the ability to go for two in that setting where the Chiefs defense has been unable to stop the Buffalo Bills offense? Now the Bills can go for two points and win the game right there in Arrowhead Stadium. And so I think we may see in overtime of the postseason games, teams go for two on the second possession to end some of these games. It just adds another level of intrigue and drama uh, to what is being created with the new NFL overtime rule. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. I do, you do, we all do, big, small. And when we keep them bottled up, as I sometimes have had happen in the past, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Adam today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Adam. Now, last week, we brought to you a draft story. We told you about the time where we reported on the fact that the Browns would strongly consider taking Baker Mayfield, which they ultimately wound up doing. As for this week's draft story, we go back to the NFL draft of 2000. After years at the NFL draft. And one GM told me this morning he could be the first pick. Shefty has some stories. It's time for Adam's exclusive draft story. It was the night before the draft. I had a charity function in Denver with a date that I really wanted to take to this particular party. And it was important for me to file a story to the Denver Post at that time that would basically pinpoint the Denver Broncos draft selection. And in my calls leading up to the draft, it became quickly apparent to me that Denver seemed to have strong interest in wide receiver Todd Pinkston. And I had had a run there where I was able to get some of the Broncos draft information. I think they were being very careful. And when I look back at it, I think there might've been some people that were trying to set me up. And so I wrote a long story 
for the Denver Post saying how the Broncos were zeroing in on Todd Pinkston in this draft. And it wouldn't be a surprise if he was the first round pick of the Denver Broncos. And I followed that story about four or five in the afternoon. And I was very happy to be done with my work for the day. And I headed out to the draft function that night in Denver, Colorado with my date. And while I was there, there were other Broncos officials there, such as the Denver Broncos owner at the time, Pat Bolin. And I remember seeing him on the reception line and saying, Mr. Bolin, big draft tomorrow. Todd Pinkston, right? And he goes, Todd Pinkston. And I go, no. And he goes, no. And I go, oh, no. I excused myself from the date at this charity function. I went to the pay phones because at the time we didn't have cell phones. And I began making a series of phone calls to various Broncos officials to see if I could figure out who they would be taking in the draft. And so from the payphone in the Marriott City Center at the Denver Hotel, I dictated a news story to my news desk that the Denver Broncos were zeroing in on California cornerback Delta O'Neill with the 15th overall pick. And that was the headline in the Denver Post the very next morning. Denver focused on Delta O'Neill with the 15th overall pick. And lo and behold, who did the Broncos pick with the 15th overall pick that day? Delta O'Neill. Todd Pinkston went to Philadelphia, as Eagle fans well remember. And the Broncos, who I think went out of their way to trip me up that year with the Todd Pinkston false information that allowed me what I thought to go to that charity function. Well, the charity function got spoiled for me. The date got spoiled. The girl broke up with me a short time after. She saw what that life would have been like. But I was able to get Delta O'Neill going to the Denver Broncos with the 15th overall pick in 2000. All right, let's move ahead to this week's podcast. And our guest this week, the new head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Todd Bowles. Todd, hold up, yeah. cow. What has this past week been like for you? It's been a little different, Jason. <laughs> I, I should think it was, it was my week off. I guess it was my week off anymore. <laughs> So a week, off, a, week, a week off changed pretty quickly. How did you get the news that Bruce Arians was step? Hey, by the way, was that his office or is that your office all along? You change offices? I have not changed yet. This is my office. Okay, so that's your office. Are you moving yeah. into his office or is he staying in his office? No, I'm moving in there. I'm moving down there later this week and the next week. I'll start little by little. I gotta clean it out and <laughs> put some clean mine out and put some stuff in there. So. Does he have like bottles all around there that you got to clean out and then wipe it down and everything like that? Or what? He actually has a clean office after you don't, <laughs> don't have any of that floating around. <laughs> so how did you get the news that Bruce was stepping upstairs for lack of a better phrase, and you were stepping into his office? Well, I flew to New Jersey for the weekend to see my son because he's up at Rutgers. So I, I was there from Friday to Monday, and I have a house. I have a house in Charlotte, so I flew down to check on my house. And when I got off the plane, I turned on my phone. I had a message from Bruce that said to call him, and he asked me where I was. I said I was in Charlotte. I'm going to check on my house. He said he wanted to tell me in person, but I guess he can't. He said he was stepping down and he was turning it over to me. And I said, "What?" I'm like, you're kidding me, right? You know, it's owner's week. It's the week off. You kind of passed all that stuff of when jobs change and everything else. So you kind of set your sights on things that you have to do. And I said, okay. He asked me when I was going to be back. I told him, I'm coming back 
on Tuesday because I had, you know, floor seats to the Nuggets and the Hornets that night. I was going to the basketball game. <laughs> so I went to the basketball game and Jason called me a few times at the basketball game. And I, I'm trying to hear him over the phone, but, you know, basketball games have music and everything going on at one time. It's kind of hard to hear. And then I talked to Bruce again Tuesday when I landed. I landed on Tuesday, talked to Jason some more, talked to Joe Glazer found out that Bruce was okay. I thought something was wrong and he really wants something he wanted to do on his own terms. And, you know, that's how it all came about. So when he initially texted you, he had said that he had something he wanted to share with you, but he shared with you at that moment what it was or he, no, he, just, said, he just said, hit me back. So then the text that hit me back. So I called him and I said, Hey, what's happening coach. And then that was kind of led into everything it was the conversation. It wasn't so much the text. The text just said, hit me back. When he tells you that he's stepping down, what goes through your mind? I'm initially I'm thinking something's wrong with him because you know the season's over. We're going into the owners' week. I'm hoping he's okay, and that that's the first thing that went through my mind. Nothing else really went through my head. And I saw that he was okay and better than ever, you know. And it's something he really said he's been thinking about and wanting to do after talking to Jason and Joel and them understanding that he's thought about it for a long time. It kind of starts setting in. And how will you remember the impact that Bruce has had on your coaching career? He coached you at Temple, correct? Yeah, that was a long time ago. I can't even begin to put in the words the impact he's had on my entire career from having me as a redshirt sophomore at Temple University all the way up until now. And we've been together, and we were together in Cleveland from 2000 to 2004 under Butch Davis. And we're together in Arizona, obviously, and then now we come back together here. So each time has been a different experience for the both of us. And each time it became like father, son, nephew, uncle, brother, big brother, little brother. And the bond that we have will carry out, carry with me the rest of my life. Is there anybody that has impacted your career more, Todd, than Bruce Arians? Oof. Maybe not more. There's a lot of other people that go with that. Uh, Bruce is right at the top of the list at number one. I would say Doug Williams, Parcells, Joe Gibbs, Richie Pettibone, Emmett Thomas. Those guys really had a big impact on a lot of things. But Bruce is obviously number one because of the things, the times I've been around him and the more times I've been around him. I've learned a lot of things from a lot of coaches over the years and I can go on and on, but he's right there at the top. That's a heck of a list of mentors right there, Todd. Yeah, I had some good coaches in my lifetime. I was lucky. So you take over the Buccaneers late March, early April. It's an unusual timeline for somebody to take over a team as a head coach. What's the first thing that you have to get done when you take over a team at this juncture in the offseason? Well, there's plenty of things that have to get done at the same time, but you know, taking over this late, you can only do one thing at a time. So everything will get done. Just make sure I'm not trying to build Rome in a day, so to speak. You know, I'm going to control the things I can control. I have coaches that I've been here with that I rely on. The front office has been great. The Glazers have been great. And I'll take them one at a time and meetings as they come. And, you know, I got to schedule Germany trips. We got to get the off-season schedule back together. And no, I got to meet with the leadership council of the team and do all those things that I'll get done because we were off last week. Today is really the first official day that I have things going. 
and the 30 visits are coming up or starting today. And so you have a lot of things that you have to take care of. So I'll do a little bit of everything every day, but control what I can control and handle the important stuff first. But I guess it's different, right? When a coach takes over a new team or he gets hired as a head coach, usually he's got to hire a staff. He's got to familiarize himself with the roster. He's got to get used to the people within the entire organization. You already know all this. Everything's in place. Basically, you're taking over the wheel of a finely tuned machine here, and you're just trying to make sure that it runs smoothly and efficiently. Am I correct about that? Yeah, well, I've been here three years. I've gotten to know a lot of the players, and I know all the coaches as well as the front office. So it's a new job, but it feels like an old job at times as well. Obviously, you're the leader of the team and decisions you have to make and tweak some things as you see it. But at the same time, it's great to have chemistry and people around you that you know without getting to know people and without getting to know how they think and what they think. But you still try to put your own stamp on it. You know, everybody thinks I'm not trying to be Bruce and I'm not going to be and no one could ever be Bruce. You know, I'm going to be Todd and I'm going to coach the ball club and we're going to get things going. How do you feel about becoming a head coach again now? What do you take out of your first experience in New York? to the kinder, gentler, softer Tampa Bay market that you can learn from here? Well, New York media wasn't bad. You know, it was my first go round. You learn a lot more in hindsight afterwards of things you do different in the building with your team, with yourself, with your staff. And you, the first time you get it, there are things you want to do and you go in full bore, but there are things that you really can't do. And in hindsight, you look at it, you grow from experience. But I think the whole experience has made me a much better coach and a much better person of stepping back, seeing situations and handling things on an individual basis. And I think it couldn't do anything but help me going forward. So I'm thankful for the time that I got, you know, so far too often. I think people get jobs and get fired and say that's because he that's because she that's because it. No, I'll take full responsibility for things I can control. And as a head coach, you're charged with winning and I have to win ball games. So there's a lot more that goes into that from a standpoint of adjusting to a team and everything else. But I haven't been through it and understanding where I am now. I have a a lot better understanding of things that I want to do and need to do. And that's what I'll do. What's something you would have done differently there in New York when you look back at it? You talk about the things you've learned and the things you would do different. I think in the interview, I probably would have asked more questions. I think I got hired the day before the GM got hired. And I I think that marriage is important. Uh, I think, you know, it it was a strange kind of two years, the first two years there, because the owner, obviously, became an ambassador overseas. So it was kind of a a lot of moving parts going into a bunch of these things. So you just make sure you have good clarity on what's going on in the building on a daily basis and the things you can control, you control and not try to put everything in one basket. And every player is different, just like every person in the building is different. And I've met a lot of great people in that building, but, you know, as a head coach, your management, you know, you have to wear a lot of hats going in. You take them off, you put them on, you put them on, you take them off. And they kind of snowball on you at a certain point where you don't know it as a coach. And I know every coach has gone through this. And you have to step back. And the only way you can step back is either after the season or when you do get fired or something like that. So you reevaluate yourself and you come back a better coach and a better person and you move forward from there. You know, listen, I've covered the league for 32 years, so I see a lot of guys get fired and hired. and Some guys don't get hired. But it does seem to me like that when a lot of people get fired, 
they're a little bit angry about her for a little bit of time. Like I always think it takes about a year for that to wear off. Did you feel any of that that you carried with you going forward? Or did you feel like it was just something that you were able to learn from and you were able to move on, even though essentially the Jets wind up breaking up with you? I thought it was something I learned from and could move on with. I think in the process and during the process, I learned to blame myself a lot more before it even happened. I would do some things and I took full responsibility and I was never one to try to deflect blame or put on anyone else. But you learn these things and I don't think you can move forward as a coach or as a better coach until you learn to accept responsibility and find things within yourself that you can change. Now, when you coach the Jets, you coached against Tom Brady. Now you get to coach with Tom Brady. What have you learned about him from the time you used to coach against him to the time now that you coach with him? Tom, Tom is, we have a, we have a lot in common, the fact that we both want to win and we don't care how we win. We're both very detailed and like to do things a certain way, and we just like the end result. Whether we score 100 points or whether we score six points, we're trying to win the ball game and we're trying to do everything in our power every day to win the ball game. And I love that part about him. And it's not about him throwing for five and six touchdowns. It's him winning on the scoreboard and understanding the game and how to attack people and how to defend attacking people, uh, people attacking us. So I think we have a lot in common that way. And I think it'll work well. Did you have an idea of what kind of guy he was like before you got to coach him? And how did that measure up to what you thought of him before you actually began working with him on a more daily basis? Didn't actually know him other than playing against him when I was in New York, obviously. But him coming here and getting to know him over the past two years has been great for us from a competitive standpoint defensively. But even walking off the field with him a lot of times and us just talking football, wanting to know about certain things and bouncing certain things off of each other. And he's a heck of a guy and he's a heck of a teammate, you know, and when he's on the field, he competes like hell. He he likes to have fun a little bit when he's not on the field, but he's all business when he's on the field. And, and, you know, he really cares about his teammates. So now that you take over as a head coach, is there going to be any more time to go to Hornets, Nuggets games or any other NBA games? Are we done with that? Uh, we might be done with that. I wish something came to town a little bit, but, you know, it's the off season. If I'm out of town one night, I'm a big basketball guy. I don't mind taking in the ball game out of town if I'm out of town. Me too. Next time you're in New York, I'm inviting you to go to a basketball game. How about you that? A, you got a deal. We'll, we'll go you to a game a together. I, I love watching it too. You got wow. a deal. I'm a big basketball guy. That's my, that's my off-season basketball. And who's your team? And who's your player? Like, who are your I guys? I usually follow LeBron. Anywhere LeBron is, that's pretty much where I am. So he, he's been my favorite for a long time. Have you ever met him? I saw him one time play at the Garden when I was with the Jets. I had my kids and we sat right behind the bench, but I have not met him. See, here's what you got to do. You got to bring in LeBron, invite him down to the Buccaneers to address the team, hang out with you, hang out with Brady. Like, well, I know he's a big Cleveland guy, so I, <laughs> I find it hard to him come down to Tampa. I hate, but he's more than welcome. Anytime he would like, he gets a billion requests, so I'm going to leave him alone that way, but... He's got a fan in me. But hold on. We just want to be very clear. This is an open, this is an official open invite to LeBron to come meet with the Buccaneers, address the <laughs> Buccaneers, right? Whatever he wants to do with the Buccaneers for a day, right? Sam, Sam I think he got his <laughs> trying to get in the playoffs right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll 
Okay. Well, when his season's done, Todd, when his season's done. When his season's done, if he has nothing to do and I run into him, hey, more power to him. Hey, he's a busy man. I understand. <laughs> I got to meet him one time in my life. I was covering sideline game for a Cleveland Cavaliers game on a Friday night. I'll never forget it. Standing outside the locker room, he walked out. He saw me. He did a double take. He said, what are you doing here at a game like this? Doing the sidelines. And I remember walking out, and about five minutes later, my wife called me to say that my son got into the University of Michigan. So within a five-minute span, I got to meet LeBron James for the first time and find out my son got into college, the college he wanted to go to. I'll always remember that the rest of my life. That's a heck of a five minutes. <laughs> well, hopefully you, minutes. You, you had, you've had a couple of those five-minute stretches, the Texan Bruce, and hopefully we have one with LeBron coming to Tampa. Yeah, but hey, when Jordan retired, LeBron became my guy. <laughs> hey, Todd, I appreciate you taking some time during your busy schedule to pop on here. Congratulations on the new job. Wish you lots of luck with it. Appreciate it, Seth. And there is the head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Todd Bowles, and he's the perfect guy to keep the Buccaneers right in playoff contention and have this team have a very strong season and potentially postseason as well. And just as Bowles was given a new contract, ESPN announced last week that it had reached agreement with me on a new deal. And there were a couple of people that I didn't get to thank in a statement that we kind of rushed to put together on Thursday morning. For whatever reason, the company wanted to put out the announcement. And I wanted to make sure that I took a moment to thank certain people who were it not for them, I would not be in the position I am today. And the first person that comes to mind is my boss at the network, the head of the NFL department at ESPN, Seth Markman. Seth Markman is the one who initially fought to hire me at the network in 2009 when other people were balking at that time. Seth Markman is the one who basically helped arrange for that to get done. And he has been one of my closest friends at the network since I was brought on. And I would not be in the position I am today, uh, were it not for him backing me, supporting me. We met way back in the day at the NFL's broadcast boot camp. The idea of coming to work for ESPN came up as just a distant thought, hope, and dream. But Seth was the one to put that into action and bring me aboard. And when he put that plan into place and began acting on it, he also requested the permission and the sign off of one Chris Mortensen, who's been like a big brother to me this entire time. I grew up idolizing Mort and the job that he did on ESPN. Being brought over to ESPN to get to work with him was a dream come true. He has been a model teammate, an incredible reporter, a great person. And there's nobody that keeps me feeling light and laughing the way that Mort does. People know what a great reporter is, but they don't realize how funny he is. And at the most stressful times in this job, and there can be many, Mort is the one who doesn't take it very seriously and makes you laugh at yourself. And back in the day when Seth Markman asked Mort if he was okay with the network bringing me aboard, Mort could have shot me down and said, yeah, not a fan of his work, would rather not work with him. But Mort signed off on it, endorsed ESPN hiring me. And were it not for him saying and doing what he did, I would not have come to work at ESPN. And so there are so many people to thank who played a part uh, in me coming over to ESPN that I think about so fondly 
and graciously, Stephanie Drooley helping to execute the contract. John Skipper on the last contract. Jimmy Pitaro, incredible on this contract. I, he makes it awfully easy to want to work for a company like this. Jimmy Pitaro is just incredible. Uh, but two guys I didn't cite in the statement that ESPN issued on Thursday were Seth Markman and Chris Mortensen. And they, more than anybody else, are responsible for me being in the position I am working for this company now for 13 years, uh, tied to the company for 18 years in all. It's been an unbelievable run, an incredible run. And Seth Markman and Chris Mortensen made that possible. Some other overdue thanks are in order this week, namely for Mike Gallagher, the fantasy basketball expert, the senior NBA analyst for Establish the Run NBA. Mike helped me draft my fantasy basketball team and our ESPN War Room team, which he had some great calls early on, like Josh Giddy and Evan Mobley and rookies that I didn't really know very much about that he stood behind. And then this past week, he was my lifeline. When my team lost Robert Williams, the Time Lord, when it lost Evan Mobley to a sprained ankle, when it lost Josh Giddy to a season-ending hip injury, Mike Gallagher was the one who helped come up with a couple of suggestions that put me over the top. We claimed Killian Hayes, the Detroit Pistons guard on waivers. On Friday night, with my team on the ropes and down, Killian Hayes played 40 minutes, shot 12 of 25 from the floor, had two three-pointers, seven rebounds, eight assists, five steals, and two blocks. Killian Hayes took what was a huge deficit in my fantasy basketball league, totally flipped the script, and allowed me to advance to the finals this week where I'll be facing the NBA producer, Michael Schiffman, with a loaded team. Killian Hayes, at the recommendation of Mike Gallagher, helped get me through, and I am indebted to Mike Gallagher for the work that he did with my team. I am so happy. There are a few things in life that bring me any more joy than fantasy success. That right there is one. Also, as we're coming off this crazy month of NFL coverage, where somebody aptly said that the entire month, all the moves were one giant April Fool's joke. That's what the NFL offseason has been like. I want to thank my friend Brooke Freeman for her constant supply of dark chocolate-covered almonds, which I love bringing them by the house and dropping them off, and even getting me a pair of pants uh, because I haven't had time to really change or wash my clothes or anything like that. Brooke Freeman, thank you very much. An overdue thank you to her. So we have overdue thank yous for Seth Markman, Chris Mortensen, Mike Gallagher, Brooke Freeman. And I also want to thank Todd Bowles for joining us today. I want to thank my producer today, Sarah Abbott, for stepping in for Christina Buswell and getting this all done. And I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning into another Adam Schefter podcast. Guess what, everybody? It's Masters Week. It's opening day. It's the NBA War Room Finals Fantasy Week. There's a lot going on. Hope everybody enjoys it. Have a great week. Be well and stay safe. And we'll be back in this spot again next week.